I think the first thing I have to say and the most obvious thing to say is that what I had planned to say was very, very different Saturday afternoon than what I'm going to say now on Sunday morning because of the events last night. Um, clearly that will impact upon what I'm going to say in some respects, but maybe actually the truth is that, that the substance of it is still the same, that we're here on Pentecost Sunday. Um, depending upon your theology, that's either a fantastic coincidence or else it's something that God, has, through the Spirit, has helped to engineer. We can debate that another time. Um, but actually, I think it's quite appropriate that it is Pentecost Sunday because actually, if you remember nothing else from what I'm going to say briefly in the next few minutes, it's that as people of God, our identity is in Christ. And that gives us a commitment to one another, a commitment to the God that is within us, and a commitment to a faith that both speaks to our cultural context and our experience and our narratives that make us who we are, but also transcends it. It's both. It's both within and beyond. And so if you remember nothing else, it's actually that on this day, what we have as Christians is a hope in God that's fashioned us as a people that encourages us to see one another as bearers of the stamp of Christ, irrespective of the social, irrespective of the societal differences and the ways in which we sometimes identify and label one another. This talk is based on a book that I wrote a number of years ago. This came out in 2009. I think there are still a few copies, but I'm not sure if it's still been published by SPCK. And it is, is God colourblind? Now, the first thing I want to say is that it's my assertion that God is not colourblind. But I'll explain what I mean by that shortly. But, but I think it's honest for me to say that that's my assertion, that's my belief. I don't know for a fact that God is colourblind, because... I think the most important thing we all have to say, I think all theologians have to say, and these are not my words, these are the words of my mentor, James H. Cohn, who is the founding father of black liberation theology. And James Cohn says that theology is human speech about God. Human speech about God. God does not do theology because God knows God's self. It's important to say that because too often times in our hubris we write our theology as if somehow we've got God sitting on our shoulder saying, Anthony, this is exactly what I mean. I'm good but not that good. <laughs> so these are my assertions. It's what I believe to be true. But it's based on, I would say, a strong evidence that comes from the scriptures, particularly on this day, on the day of Pentecost. Now, people do whole PhDs on this stuff. Trust me, I have examined some PhDs on this stuff. Some are more interesting than others. Um, so it, it could be temp tempting to get into lots of analytical and historical analysis as to why I've come to the view that God isn't colourblind and where does the historical issue come from in terms of how we see difference or don't see difference and how we appreciate different cultures and identities and where does racism come from. could say all that, but that would be a pretty dry and boring talk. So instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you two stories. Because these two stories are quite pivotal in terms of how they have shaped the writing of this book and the view I have that is God colourblind? No, God isn't. So the first story comes back to 1977. I was born in 1964. And this is a, although I've lived in Birmingham since 1984, this is a Yorkshire accent. I come from, I come from Bradford, West Yorkshire, God's own city. And as they often say, you can take the man out of Yorkshire, but you can't take Yorkshire out of the man. So in some respects, I'm probably more Yorkshire now because I don't live there. There's nothing quite annoying as Yorkshire folk in exile from where we come from, because like, we then become super Yorkshire. But I was born in Bradford, West Yorkshire, and I grew up in a large city centre mission, Eastbrook Hall Methodist Mission. And I owe those people a huge amount, a great debt. I would not be here. The person I am were not shaped by their great teaching and encouragement. But there was a major existential crisis when I was 12 years old. I grew up in a church, I said, a wonderful church, but we were one of only two black families in the church. And it was an overwhelmingly white middle-class church, and the superintendent minister, who was the person in charge, 
and then there was a, a junior minister who was really someone who was kind of like sort of learning the ropes, someone on probation, and then there was a deaconess, and they were all white. And I graduated, as you did in Sydney School, the very formal Sydney School in those days, I graduated from the, from the juniors to the seniors, aged 12 years old. And they gave me a Bible. And here it is. It's a Jerusalem Bible, as you can see. It's, it's somewhat worn. For the purposes of my parents, I still tell them that I read it every single day. That's not quite strictly true. Um, although I do read their version of the Bible every day, but not necessarily this one. But what's interesting in this Bible is that there are lots of coloured plates. That's Jesus walking on the water, for those of you who got particularly good eagle eyes. Every character in here is white. Every single one. And when we met in the parlour, which was like the back room right at the back of the church, which was a large, damp, cold room, and on the firewall was a picture of Jesus, who looked a bit like Bjorn Borg. In actual fact, he looked more like Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg looks like Bjorn Borg. And clearly, obviously, obviously in first century Judea, they had things like Remington beard trimmers, because obviously Jesus had this wonderfully coiffured, wonderfully stylized beard. A handsome-looking man was Jesus. Stood there with his piercing blue eyes. And, and it's one of those pictures whereby wherever you went in the room, the eyes of Jesus would follow you. Follow you. So our Sunday school teacher was very, very smart. She would often say, OK, I'm going to pop out now, but I want you to behave because Jesus is watching you. <laughs> and so Jesus would indeed watch us. Now, I would stare at that photograph for quite a long time because I grew up in a church where... And to be very clear, I was affirmed. I grew up in the faith. I knew that God loved me. I knew I was part of God's family. And yet it was a family that was over, overly controlled and represented by white people, or particularly white middle-class people. I was black working class. And so eventually I summed up the courage and asked my Sunday school teacher, I said, Miss, is that, that's Jesus? She says, yes. And that's the Son of God? And she says, yes. And I'm sure she's probably thinking, I'm sure we've covered this already. <laughs> So why are you asking me some basic, you know, I mean, you should know better. Um, and I said, okay. So I said, well, so if that's the son of God, and that's what God looks like, then who am I? And she paused for a second. Now, friends to her, you know, as, as a Sunday school teacher who, who did it on a voluntary basis, she wasn't really in a position to answer such a deep philosophical question. Because the truth is, people have wrestled with this for centuries. And she turned to me and said, oh, well, it doesn't matter, Anthony. And at one level, that answered the question, okay, it doesn't matter. But yet, of course, in another way, it did matter. Because it mattered in a church where power was held by white people. All the images were white people, insofar as there were images in a non-conformist Methodist church. Like we don't do images too tough, if you know anything about Methodism. But, but insofar as there were pictures, there were not pictures of diversity. And insofar as there were pictures representing Holy Scripture, there were not diversity in here either. And the social experience I had grown up in Bradford was that we lived in one of the poorest parts of the city, that's where the immigrants lived. People who come from the new Commonwealth, Africa, and the Caribbean. My parents come from Jamaica, and then from Indian subcontinent, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, of which there was a significant communities in Bradford. We all lived in the poorest parts. And so therefore saying it didn't matter, didn't quite correlate with our social experience, where of course it did seem to matter. And so for years I wrestled with this. How is it that it doesn't matter, and yet it does seem to matter? That was 1977. Fast forward 30 years, 2007, and I'm leading a workshop in London, and we're talking about black liberation theology. That's my specialism. And... This is part of a whole series of events that were in 2007 to mark the bicentenary of the abolition of the slave trade. If you think back to 2007. Funny how time seems to speed up when you're getting older. It seems, it's, it seems like it was only yesterday that I was doing all those speaking events and it's ten years have gone by. But, but this was ten years ago. And we... And I was leading this session in Lambeth. 
and I was speaking about black liberation theology, where it comes from. I was talking about my work, and I was giving anecdotes and examples. And then we came to the Q&A. And then a young black man in his 20s got up and was very angry with me and said, Dr. Reddy said, I heard what you said, and I think you're wrong on every account. Every account, you're wrong. And I thought, okay, well, that's fair enough. He said, you know what he says? I don't think colour matters. He says, in actual fact, I want to go further. I want to tell you this, he said. I stopped being black when I was saved. And there was utter silence. And then there was a crescendo of applause from mainly black audience and mainly more black evangelicals or Pentecostals who then clapped him and said, absolutely, yes, yes, you're right, brother. God does not see colour. So I responded, and I tried to do so quite gently because I didn't want to, to undermine how this person was identifying himself because actually one of the great powers, one of the great freedoms at its best of being a human being is your ability to define yourself. So of course if he wants to say that, that's his right. But I was still troubled by it, so my response to him was, as gently as I could, I said, I'm not sure at what point blackness became so terrible that God had to save you from it. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I didn't go down that well either, actually. <laughs> um, it quickly descended at that point. They booed me. I haven't been booed that often, but I was certainly booed off the stage on that particular occasion. But that's what then got me thinking. Those two experiences, my own experience of being 12 years old in 1977 and then 30 years later, this thing about, does God see colour? And why is it so troubling to us? So I want to offer three very, very quick thoughts, because I, I want to give us enough time for questions, particularly if, if one wants to raise any questions around, uh, around what happened here in London last night. Not that I'm smiting for like to have all the answers to that, but hey, you know. First thing is, I can understand the retreat into what, in the book I talk about, colourblind theology. I can understand the desire to want to have our identities that transcend our ethnic and cultural background. I'm trying to resist using the word race because race doesn't exist as a construct. There's no such thing as race, there's only the human race. There was racism, but there isn't race as such. So ethnicity, cultural difference. I can understand our desire to want to have a colourblind theology for two very quick reasons. First is that at its best, all religions are about transcendence. At its best, all religion is about a way of being beyond the temporal realm in which we live. That our identification with the divine, however we understand that, but certainly within the Christian context, is about being more than more than, so when I was growing up in the Methodist Church, we would talk about holiness. And we talk about sanctification. And scriptural holiness and, and being transformed by God in the power of the Holy Spirit was to be more than. And there's something deeply important about that. And so, and so whatever you hear me saying, do not hear me saying that there was not an importance in terms of a faith that takes us beyond who we are in terms of our lived realities of, as being human beings on this earth in whatever context we're in. That is deeply important. And actually, that's part of my story, part of what got me away from working class. Bradford was a belief that in the power of the Spirit, all things were possible. It's a thing that enabled me to be more than, more than just a black working class kid living in fairly poor housing in Bradford with an outdoor toilet. More than just that. But here's the problem. Our part of the problem is that we often do that as a way of trying to avoid the challenges that comes from physical difference, particularly in terms of difference that is marked by colour and ethnicity. That when I was growing up, there was, and still is, but it's not as pervasive as perhaps it was in the past, but there was a strong neg negativity around associated with blackness that all the terms were negative and all the images that came from television were negative. This, uh, this Bible has all white pictures in it. 
But I'm said that there's a worse version of this, and I've not been able to find it. Um, well, no, no, I've seen a copy of it, but I've never been able to um, to kind of hold on to it. I've seen a copy, but, uh, but I've never been able to own it, which is similar to this, except the only black person in it is the devil tempting Jesus in the desert. That isn't accidental. There is a history, as I said, if we wanted to, actually, we could get into lots of analytical discourse around the development of the way in which blackness and Africanness has been has been seen as, at best, less than, and at worst, not even human. It's bestial. So therefore, there's a sense in which a colourblind theology is an advance from that. That if you don't see colour, then what you're trying to say is that I don't see the negativity that is labelled with you. I don't see that which social construction or society has put you in a particular box because of how you look. And that's commendable to a point. And certainly I want to say this, that if the only way in which we can attribute difference is on the basis of it being inferior, then certainly I would want you to be colourblind. If, if you see me as a black man and your assumption is that I must be a rapist or a pimp or someone who's going to mug you, then clearly don't see my colour. It's an improvement. But, but the problem with that is that it still leaves the binary of white being perfectly acceptable and it's the other that's the problem. So it's very interesting that when we talk about God being colourblind, the truth is we are colourblind because white is very important. It's not accidental that any picture in here is white. It's very interesting that we don't see colour and yet of course part of the problem is, is that of course white is never seen as a colour. But actually, white is ethnic along with, along with anything else. It is still a particular way of being, even though we often see in generic terms that doesn't mark it as such. So a fundamental problem with a colourblind theology is that it does not do anything to rehabilitate that otherness, that sense of being different that is marked by negativity. So, go back to the question, is God colourblind? But yes, God is colourblind if it's about making generic assumptions around people based upon an inconsequential marker that is skin colour. If, if that's how we want to operate, and that's basically empires have operated on that basis, the British Empire operated on the basis of whiteness being a site of entitlement and civilization, and the other, those in the mission field being less than, particularly if they had darker skin. So, if we work with that construction, then of course God is colourblind. But like I said, that is still a limited one because it still assumes that white is generic and the norm. And, and people from other cultures and ethnicity need to be ignored. We need to ignore their, vis- their visible difference if they're going to be human. But I don't want to be ignored because that assumes, which is a major theological question, that if colour is something we should ignore, then fundamentally it's God's fault because it's God who created it in the first place. So here's the thing. If, if we're saying God is colourblind, then that makes God somehow kind of weirdly schizophrenic. Because God creates colour and diversity only to then turn around and ignore it. Seems odd. And so the experience I had of being treated as colourblind is that somehow that didn't take account of who I was. Because if you know anything about me, I, all of us come from communities that are shaped by stories. My parents come from Jamaica. They come, uh, my father comes from the West Coast in Hanover. My mum comes from the East Coast. She comes from Portland. And some of the stories that they told about growing up in Jamaica, growing up back home, that's one of the things I remember growing up in Bradford. There was always talk about, and home was never Bradford. Home was someplace that I didn't visit until I was 17 years old. Those stories, the stories of my ancestors, the stories of my forebears, are the ones that shape me. When you say that you don't see my colour, what you're also saying is that you don't see any of those things that have shaped me. So, another way of seeing it is that God is colourblind if it's about affirming difference. If it's about saying that there is value in the different ways in which our stories shape us and the different ways in which narratives help us to be who we are, 
that yes, I'm a Christian, but all of us are some type of Christian. All of us grown up, if we've grown up in the faith or we've come to faith, we've come to a certain type of faith that's shaped by a particular experience. In, in many respects, there's no such thing as Christianity. There are different types of churches. And for a long time, if you know anything about church, you know, church history, we, we didn't talk about Christianity. But what we spoke about were churches, different types of churches. And, and certainly from, from my experience, if you've grown up in chapel Methodism in West Yorkshire, it's very different from this, for example. That much. So a little bit of my sort of class consciousness that's thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm here like to man the barricades and to fight against the establishment because that's my upbringing in terms of independent Labour Party, West Yorkshire Chapel Methodism. And certainly for a long time, that was something that shaped me as powerfully as being black and, and coming from Caribbean roots. There was something particular about all of us. And ethnicity and culture is a part of that. And God speaks into that. God is not reducible to it, but God speaks to it and God is revealed through it. So I want to say that God is not colourblind when it comes to affirming difference. And that difference sitting in tension with the, un- sit in tension with the universal element of our faith that is both within a particular experience and beyond it. And in many respects, Pentecost sums it up perfectly. On the day of Pentecost, all of you know the story. A Jewish diaspora comes to Jerusalem because it was part of the Jewish Harvest Festival. People from the whole known world. And the Spirit pours out her blessing. And people hear the gospel in their own mother tongue, their own culture. They're not hearing it in one language, in one centralised language. They're not hearing it in terms of a centralised power, such as English or British imperialism. That part of the experience of my parents growing up in Jamaica is that they learned everything about Britain and nothing about Jamaica or their own roots. That, that the church that they grew up in, founded by the missionaries, was in order to not just make them Christian, but make them good English Christians. And so they knew nothing about their own heritage. That is in contradistinction to Pentecost, where, of course, the Spirit allows people to find God, but find God in a way that is familiar to them. That all parts of the world, and certainly if you look at the places that are named, it's like Libya, North Africa, Mesopotamia, parts of the world where people of colour are in that story. And they are affirmed and God speaks to them in ways that is not colourblind, in ways that says, I recognise the colour and there's value in it. So God is not colourblind, certainly on the basis of Pentecost. But having said that, here's a tension. There's always a danger of going to the other extreme, which is where we get wrapped up in our cultural identity, in ways that then separates us from others. And ways that makes our faith so particular that we use a universal element that says that all of us fundamentalists, all brothers and sisters, beyond that. It's about unity in diversity. But that's a, a tension that we hold. But on the one hand, if I speak personally, that's all, is the only way in which I can speak. Speaking personally, I am, in one respect, I am the sum of all the, all the ways that I've been shaped as a, as a human being. Scholars, anthropologists sometimes talk about the root, R-double-O-T, that's where we come from, and the root, R-O-U-T-E, which is like the journeys that we take. And both those things shape us, that where we come from and the places that we've been all rub off on us. And all those things make me a particular type of person. So when I say I'm a Christian, I'm a particular Christian because of all those things that includes my ethnicity and my cultural background. And those things matter to God. But I'm not trapped in it. And so the faith both speaks to it, but still transcends it. There is still something of our identity in Christ that means that we are also resident aliens. That, that although we come from a particular place, our identity is not rooted just within that, which is why, for example, nationalism should be 
a real problem for Christians. That we find ourselves in a context whereby we think our, our allegiance lies to a particular place with other people and not seek identification with other brothers and sisters in the faith who don't look anything like us and, and we may never meet, then we have lost the dimension of our faith. That is also about transcendence. It's about going beyond. So yes, God is not colorblind. I think God sees difference. I think God affirms difference. God affirms cultures. But our faith is not locked into a particular culture. It's not locked into a particular form of expression. It's not locked into a particular form of words or, or a particular set of creeds. That part of our scandal of church is that we have not been one, as Jesus says to his followers in John 17. What we often end up is, and for truth, it's about human nature, we always end up being tribal. Now, we often use that as a pejorative way of looking at Africa, but the truth is, all of us are tribal. Let's Think about the election campaign that we've been in and tell me anything more tribal than that. All of us belong to particular groups. All of us have our social networks. So if we're honest, at their worst, they simply reflect our own prejudices. If everybody just listened to me a bit more, if everyone actually just bought my books a bit more, I mean, I could do the sales. <laughs> I could do the sales and the royalties. You know, if everyone just bought this a bit more, listened to me, the kingdom of heaven would be just about a little bit closer, you know? All of us are tribal. All of us live in our particular groups. It's not as Africans who are tribal. All of us are. And our faith at one level speaks to that. There is something about being part of a group that affirms you, that, that speaks to your identity and your culture. There was something for me about growing up in an African-Caribbean community in Bradford that was about helping me to understand who I was, that the narratives of where I came from, the root R-O-O-T, and the root R-O-U-T-E, were formation. And I guess all of us have those stories that we could share about our own experience, about how those things have shaped us. And God speaks into it because it's part of our history, it's part of our humanness. And actually, that's what the incarnation tells us, that flesh matters. It matters so much that God took on flesh and lived in a particular place. But also, our faith transcends that. Not at the expense of our identity and our culture or our colour, if you want to use those terms. But God affirms us in that, but always reminds us that there is more, there is a beyondness, there is something into which we are being daily shaped by the power of the Spirit that helps us at its best to have identification with others who are not like us. That in conclusion, I would just just say a very, very quick thing about when I first came in here, because I arrived a little early, because I was slightly, I'm, like, I'm always paranoid about being late, and, and again, and it's interesting how cultures shape you, that one of the culture I grew up with was the assumption that Caribbean people had no concept of time, and we just drifted in when we liked it. And I remember turning up late accidentally for a meeting, which was a whole set of circumstances beyond my control. And the, and the person who was organising it then assumed and says, well, of course, it's, it's great to see your docs ready. We know that black people have no concept of time. Interesting how stereotypes work. And since then, of course, I've been paranoid about ever turning up late. And so I turn up early, habitually, in order to ensure that there is no stereotype on that basis. So I arrived early, and I was just wandering around the cathedral and hearing the music. And seeing, obviously, it's central London. Now, this, I think, probably brings me very quickly then like, to some remarks about last night. As I walked in, I saw a huge panoply of difference all walking around this building. Actually, I think one of the great strengths of the Church of England as a public church our cathedrals that allow people just to walk in. Like, you don't have to be part of a gathered community. You don't need to be part of, certainly Methodism, like with your membership ticket. And you, don't, you don't need any of that. You just drift in. And as I walked in, I saw the whole world inside St. Paul's Cathedral. People from all different cultures, different walks of life, different narratives, different reasons that they're there, different stories that have taken them there, different stories that have shaped who they are as individuals. 
Every one of those individuals has a particular story and there's something of their particularity that includes their colour that God sees. As we see on this day of Pentecost. It could have easily said, and God spoke to everybody and they all heard it in Koinonia Greek. But they didn't. They heard it in their own mother tongue. The place where they came from, the place that had shaped them. And yet, there is unity in the sense in which all of us are together in this place. It's not, it's not easy to hold those things in tension because throughout history there's always been totalitarians on the left and the right that have tried to herd everybody into one particular expression, whether it's you're part of the party, or you're part of the in-group, or you bind to a particular dominant culture. There's always that tension within human beings, and the church has often been... At its worst, a collusive partner in that. That wants to close down diversity. And yet at the same time, if we get to a point whereby our particularity closes us off from engagement with others. If it separates us from the common sense of empathy with the other. Then we have lost something powerful within our faith that is expressed on this day of Pentecost. That the people are together... They are unified in their diversity, but they are diverse in their unity. So, in conclusion, the scandal of the events of last night is that it is about trying to separate. It's about trying to say by one group that we have nothing in common with to the point whereby we will kill others in order to make our point. Our common cause as Christians, our gift to others, hopefully, is our hospitality and our inclusivity that says that the mark of Christ is in all of us. It's not more in some than others. It transcends our ethnicity and culture, and yet it speaks within it and to it. Is God colourblind? No, God isn't. Thank you. Okay, well, okay, that's very, very quickly. Well, first, um, first, uh, uh, first, I think I haven't worked at Queen's for a long time. Actually, I don't work there anymore. Uh, actually, like your bag was a bit out of date, but that's a whole other conversation, unfortunately. Um, is that I've learned the importance of ecumenical sensitivity. So let me just be very, very careful about what I say about Roman Catholic churches. Uh, or, the, or the Roman Catholic Church. Um, undoubtedly, for our church to, all our churches like to better reflect the kingdom, it would be ideal that our leadership actually reflects the broader membership of the church and clearly actually represents the gifts and graces of all peoples from all different cultures and recognises that that diversity brings something rich to the church. And I think that part of the challenge of all our churches is that is that, is that tension between being both divine gift, that we didn't invent the church, it's God's gift to us. And yet at the same time, it's a human construction that is based upon human politics and all the worst of that. And so what I would say is, hopefully, if we have this conversation in 10, 15 years' time, there will be black bishops from the Roman Catholic Church. And there'll be more than just two within the Church of England. So that's a that's an ongoing journey. But what we then have to do is to, be, is to then look particularly carefully at our structures and systems for how those things are developed. Because I think, as often been shown within social sciences, 
that actually institutional racism has, institutional racism has a way of operating beyond the good intentions of individuals. So I'm sure if you went to the Roman Catholic Church, you went to the Church of England, or indeed my own Methodist Church, it's full of good intentions and everyone would tell you that of course like, we want more diversity. Of course we do. Self-evident we do. But yet something happens in our structures and systems that ends up appointing white men from the West in particular. So that's an ongoing journey. In the second one, and again, I would be careful because um, I have lots of friends and have worked with a number of Indian students, and I know the power of, of colonialism. And the greatest power of colonialism is to implant into the colonial subject the idea that local or what is indigenous to them is not good enough. I still remember being in a church in Barbados. Now, if you haven't been to Barbados, it's a very English island. And the Anglican church is very powerful there. And, and, and I was there one year uh, as, a, as an academic. I was doing some work at Cudston. Uh, not Cudston, that's a long one, sorry. Uh, at the Anglican Theological College in, Angl- in, uh, in, in Barbados. And just escaped me in the moment. It'll, it'll, it'll probably come back on the train going home. Um, and I still remember singing In the Bleak Midwinter. <laughs> in Bridgetown, Barbados. Part of the internalised racism of colonial subjects is the way in which you internalise the notion that what happens at the Metropolitan Centre is, of course, superior. It's the real thing. It's not who we are indigenously. So, for example, in the Methodist Church, they still use like the 1933 Red Hymn Book in the Methodist Church in the Caribbean. Now, in Britain, like, we've, had three, we've had three different hymn books since then. Actually. We don't use the 1933 hymn book. But, but for being in the Caribbean, that's what real Methodism is, even though Methodism in Britain, which is the centre, actually dispensed with that a long time ago. So part of our challenge, is that, and, and, and this actually goes back to the talk I was hoping I was trying to articulate, is that we have to break the dominant relationship between colonialism and empire and a, a, and a particular facet in which the faith is articulated and break that and say, actually, God is bigger than that. And every church has to be a particular type of church and has to find indigenous language and cultures and expressions that speak to who God is in Christ in that place as opposed to what God in Christ was like in London, circa 1870. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. 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 Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, um, in terms of the first one, uh, a blatant plug, uh, well, well, actually, two blatant plugs. Um, in the book, it's got colorblind, <laughs> chapter three is described self discovery deconstructing whiteness. Whiteness, and if anyone is, well, and, and also if anyone knows anything about the British and Irish Association for Practical Theology, uh, BIAP, they have an annual conference every year. And this year they meet at St Mary's College in, no, no, sorry, at St Mary's University in Twickenham. And one of the keynote speakers is myself. And my lecture will be talking about deconstructing whiteness post-Brexit. And in both, I mean, this is a small chapter that, uh, in the paper, and the paper I'll be given at Bayat, which will eventually be published in a journal called Practical Theology, if anyone ever gets practical theology. So it's a very good journal that will be published in there later this year. But what I'm saying in both of those things, uh, actually this was the starting point, is, is best what I've said about this Bible. That we see colour. Now, if I had a pound for every white person, so I don't see colour, and it's like, yeah, trust me, you do. 
But part of the problem, actually, is that like, you don't see whiteness in its own particularity. It's this vague, generic thing that people take for granted, that one of the powers of being white is that like, you don't have to think about being white. Trust me, every black person thought about being black at some point. Even, even to think about not to think about it is still a particular act to make. And so you're right. So actually, part of the work that white people have to do is about, how, is about deconstructing whiteness. Too often times, and, and, and I'm not in danger of, of huge generalisation, so let me see if I can particularise this. That oftentimes what tends to happen in terms of whiteness is that historically it has been shaped around the notion of entitlement and superiority. So be very clear, I'm not asking white people to feel bad about being white. What I'm saying is it's also about being honest about how being white shapes your reality. In what way does it colour, to use that term quite deliberately, your take on the world? For example, we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't accept that part of the underlying thing of Brexit was a sense about white anxiety. And weirdly enough, if you, if, if you look at the voting patterns of Leave, it was often in places where there wasn't even huge amounts of difference in that place in the first place. Whiteness is predicated on on superiority and being normal. And when people turn up who are not like you, then suddenly that breeds a certain level of anxiety. So part of the issue about whiteness is how does one get to a point where it is more than just having to be better than or be different to or be superior to others. And and I said this all the time to my white brothers and sisters. Actually, one thing you need to do is not to come and tell me about racism, you're right, because I know about racism. What I need you to be is to address the racism that is caused by white people. And I say that in love because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I, I will assist you, but to be honest with you, I can't do the hard work for you because I'm not white. Secondly, in, in terms of the church... Oh, trust me, that's, that's something I've wrestled with a long time, that I have sometimes flirted with, and certainly I've actually left the church on occasions because I just thought, that is it really possible to rehabilitate this history? I think what's kept me in the church, in general, the Methodist Church in particular, two things. Firstly, is that if you delve into our history, the history of the church actually has a huge African, huge African tradition. Actually, one of the earliest schools within Christianity was the Alexandrian school, which was a very strongly dominant North African tradition. That's the tradition after which St. Augustine comes. It's very interesting that I did church history for my first degree. We studied St. Augustine for a whole year, and once no one ever mentioned that he was black. There was a strong African tradition, so therefore long before he went to Europe, it was already in Africa. And African thought forms were very influential in shaping the faith. And so part of what I've tried to do, and others have done it better than me, is to go back to early church history. And to go back to capture the time when the church was not infected by racism and Western, and Western supremacy. Also, I think it's also about the way in which, at the heart of our faith, is this personal relationship with Jesus. And the ways in which I think people of African descent and people of other cultures have been able to make peace with the church, or more accurately, make peace with the faith, not necessarily the church, has been around the identification that Jesus is one of us. That one of the things that shaped me a lot when I was growing up was my mum, who was quite clear that Jesus was her personal rock and saviour, and Jesus helped her to deal with racism of Bradford. Jesus was the one who knew her sorrows. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't love everybody else, it's that Jesus had a particular love for those people who were told that they were nothing. And the reason why I think people of African descent, certainly those of us who come from enslaved backgrounds, who were int- whose Christianity was introduced to us by the, by the whip and the lash. If there's any set of people who should have rejected Christianity, it should be the people who were taught it through the lens of oppression that destroyed the faith, and yet for some reason we have not given up on it. And I think part of it is because of this personal relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is to us something that the institutional church often isn't. And so it's very interesting that if you know anything about black theology, it's very Christocentric. It is, it does belong, it does believe in the Trinity. But Jesus is central to it because Jesus 
If you look at his life experience, so for example, one of the most important books written in black theology in the last few years is by James Cohn, and the book is called The Cross and the Lynch, sorry, The Cross of the Lynching Tree. The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cohn. And Cohn says, well, he says, he says for black people in America, our identification with Jesus comes from the fact that his death on the cross is just, is just a first century lynching. He's unacceptable, people don't like him, and he gets strung up and people stand around and they laugh and they ridicule. And God is with him in that suffering moment. And he says, actually, he says, for all those African Americans who have been lynched, often by good Christians, who saw no contradiction between reading their Bible and loving God and then lynching a black person, he says, Jesus knows our suffering. Jesus doesn't side with the white man or the white person in the plantation houses, he's with the people who are being lynched and the ones who are suffering servitude in the fields. I would highly recommend, of course, obviously, I, mean, I recommend this as well, but I also, I also recommend even more so, but seriously, even more so, The Cross and the Lynching Tree is a brilliant book by probably, not probably, he is the most important black theologian there will ever be, James H. Cohn. Absolutely, and that's a very, very subtle take on that. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, I think at the heart of all theologies of liberation, of which black theology is a particular type, is a very critical question around what does it mean to be a Christian believer? And where is God to be found? And that is a real challenge, certainly to our institutional churches, because that when I was going to, let me just very, very quickly say this very personally, that... Uh, but when I was growing up, and as I said, I, I have great admiration for the church I grew up in, so I don't want this to, I don't want this to be heard that I'm slagging off uh, the church that formed me. But it was a racist church. And the thing that struck me was that, yes, they'd love me, but I was still seen as second class. And the truth is, when I look back and I think about the sign of the kingdom, the sign of the kingdom wasn't often in people in the church, it was people in my school, in my school teachers. And I can think of two particular school teachers who were not Christians, but their belief in me as a human being, and their belief in the equality and the importance of all people, irrespective of ethnicity or race or class, that in many respects they were more disciples of Jesus than anybody in the church I went and so on a regular basis. And so, and, so, and, and so the great challenge of liberation theology often is that part of our problem with organised religion, certainly when it, it gets allied to forms of conservatism with a small c and a large c, is that it ends up defending the status quo and people on the margins get overlooked. And so you're right, a central contestation is what does it mean to be a Christian? And... And if you're a Christian who has a privatised faith, although this is new, Bonhoeffer, not people said this a long time before, about costly grace. That if our faith leads us to a privatised faith that says, I'm saved by God, but sod everybody else. And particularly if they don't look like me, particularly if they're Muslims, particularly if they're seen as people who are different and dangerous. Now let's face it, there are types of Christianity in Britain on the right in this country that are doing this as we speak. So when they talk about we got to defend Christian Britain, you know it doesn't include me in it. That defending Christian Britain means defending white Britain. And so you're absolutely right. A, a central contestation of the faith is one that has a radical belief in the importance of all people, particularly those who are at the bottom of society and those who are marginalised. For those of you who don't know about liberation theology, the centre of it is a preferential option for the poor. 
That God has a particular care for the poor. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love everybody else. One of the best descriptions I've heard actually comes from the, one of the founders of liberation theology, which is, is Gustavo Gutierrez, who says it's, it's something like, a good parent loves all their children. But a good parent also knows that like, the strong, confident ones who are going to stride off and do great things don't need as much care and attention as the ones that are struggling in the family and have a whole set of issues that means that they're not going to survive without extra care and attention. Oftentimes, if we're honest, our, our ways of, of social political construction often, at its worst, represents like the worst of nature, which is where a mother has a brood and what you do is that like, you identify the ones who are going to be strong and confident and you put the resources into them and the ones that are struggling, like, you let them die because actually that's the logic of evolutionary advancement. That the ones who are not productive, the ones who are lazy, the ones who are shiftless and skiving and the chabs, and we all know the type of language that can be used, are the ones that don't matter. That is not the gospel. Mm-hmm. And each one has its positives and negatives. What I enjoy about the UK is, and you know, forgive me for speaking as yeah. a general term, but it, it mimics what you said in your conversation, which is there's a confidence of white right people about, I am not racist, and I expect you to not see me as someone who holds racist views towards you. And so that's quite freeing because when, when in America, and I'm talking to a white American, and they are cognizant of their Yes, um, I think as a Christian theologian, one has to believe in hope. That you know that uh, that, that that if we don't have an eschatological hope, we don't have a hope that we are being moved towards God's God's vision, God's eventuality, where these things will be open and will be discussed, and there will be greater justice. I mean, obviously, I, I still believe in that. I, I'm not sure it's going to happen anytime soon, but um, you know, I'm, I still I still believe in it. I think it's a counterpoint to what you just said and I think there's a great truth in that but I think one of the strengths of the American context is that, that in some respects actually like the lack of I'll put it another way that some of the rigidity that exists around race or racism has at least conversely given African Americans something very clear and visible to fight against and therefore what you also have are black institutions and things that have been created that, that don't fix American racism but find ways to ameliorate it. Now one of the things I find interesting about growing up in the UK and I spent a lot of time studying and working in America and so I've seen some of the comparisons is you're right, that in some respects things are much more open here and yet actually if you look at, if you look at issues of diversity, there are far less black people in prominent positions than any, you know, let's face it, you know what I mean, for all the faults and whatever one wants to say about Barack Obama, he was president. I can't tell you when that's going to happen anytime soon in, in the British context. And so, as a part of our problem over here sometimes is that, that even when conversations happen, they happen, but never at a structural systemic level. So, um, so I've met people 
who have positions of power in white institutions, and they'll say, I'm not racist. And I'll say, okay, I, I believe you. Okay, I'll, you know, I'll take your word for it. As a Christian, I'm, you know, if you say that, I believe you. But let's look at the outcomes of what you are overseen in your institution. And your institution is as racist as it was 30, 40 years ago. So therefore, all your good intentions about, well, I'm not racist, actually, in one, one level, it's great and commendable. Another level, don't mean a damn. Because it's good rhetoric, but nothing changes. And so part of our, part of our challenge has to be at, at an individual level that people take an individual responsibility. All of us have certain certain spheres of influence in terms of how we relate to other people. Just very, very quickly, just to make a parallel, because I, I, I've met parallel between gender and kind of race, ethnicity. That's one of the most powerful things I remember was I was on a gender justice committee within the Methodist Church where we were looking at se- institutional sexism. And the most important thing I realised as an ally, as a male, as an eldest child, privileged male in my family, is that it was important for me to speak out against sexism and not assume that a woman should do it. As part of speaking out against sexism was to acknowledge my own culpability on the ways in which I have benefited from being a male. Now, it's very easy to talk about race and ethnicity because I see that as being something that works against me, but, but much harder to own my masculinity and to own my male privilege. And, and, actually, it, and actually, in fairness, it was my sister who brought that to me. It's my sister who said, but don't you realise the fact that as great as our parents were, they treated you very differently from how they treated me? And I said, no, of course they didn't. But here's the problem. If you're part of the privilege, you don't see it. And so the greatest ally is to speak out against the thing that benefits you. And so therefore, I often say, part of the greatest thing that white people can do is that when there's an issue of racism, don't wait for the black person to raise it, or the person of colour, or, or, or the person who comes from a minority ethnic group. You can raise it. If we are our, our brothers and sisters' keepers, Scripture says, then actually part of it is about not waiting until it impacts on you. You speak out against it, because as long as it affects someone else, it does affect all of us. So at one level, there's a personal thing we all of us can do. But also, sits really for sexuality as well. That for a long time, of course, if you're heterosexual as I am, it's normal. I never thought about it. It took me a long time to become an ally to LGBT people. Because it's not me, but because it affects other human beings who God still loves. Not still love, God has always loved. Finally, and maybe it's the harder thing then, is to look at our systemic ways of working in all our institutions, including the church. How are, how are appointments made? Are we privileged, privileging some narratives and other than others? I, again, I can't speak for the church, I'm going to be unfair, but I've sat in the Methodist Church and I've sat on committees where we have striven to do the right thing, but once you assume that the job needs a certain type of experience, it really would, it, it really would be good if they've done this kind of work before. It really, really would be good if they were available to travel and go to all kinds of uncomfortable meetings and, and doing social hours. But once you put all those things in, oh, guess what? You end up appointing another white man who went to Cambridge. Oh, oh my God, how did that happen, we say to ourselves? How do we end up not doing... Well, of course, the problem is, is that like, we didn't critique our presuppositions around who or what kind of character our experience is needed. And once you go down the line of putting certain building blocks in, you end up with, inevitably, a certain picture. It's a bit like teaching someone to paint and say, OK, OK, I, I, I want to teach you to paint, but let me do, I kind of like sort of join the dots first. So, so here's the outline, and all you have to do is to, is to join all the dots and then paint it in, and surprise enough, you come up with a particular picture. That isn't... Equality, what equality has to be, or equity has to be about, how do we look critically at every aspect of being church and the cultural ways in which certain presuppositions inevitably lead to certain types of people being advantaged? Thank you very much. Can I say something? Uh, sorry, I'm afraid we have to stop. Now. Yeah. It's two o'clock. But do come and chat down to me afterwards if you'd like to do so. Thank you. So I'm assuming you're happy to do that. Yeah, I am indeed. Um, Andrew, have you got copies of this? Great, fantastic. Um, so Angela's going to bring her books up to the table, and among them is this book, which you can buy and, and read a lot more. I mean, I've read this. It's very thought-provoking, uh, almost as thought-provoking as hearing you in the flesh, Angela, but not quite. Um, just two, two things, one depressing, one encouraging. The depressing thing is uh, we did some unconscious bias training. Well, I've done several lots, some with Tricia. 
um, on the Vacancy and C Committee uh, for appointing a new bishop. And um, somebody didn't like it, and they sent an email that said, um, you think that I'm racist because I'm doing unconscious bias training, and this is implying that I'm racist. And there's that thing about if you're British, you, know, you don't actually need it because you're not. Uh, and the idea that, that we do have to look at ourselves and engage with ourselves is really key, but there is that, again, institutional resistance. The very positive thing is where you started, which is about the spirit that leads us into all truth. And that's our hope, my hope, the hope of the church, is that despite all our failures and faults, the spirit can nonetheless beat us over the head, uh, open our hearts to see the logs in our own eyes, and enable us to begin to change. But it's a long and a tough road. But Anthony, thank you so much for all you've done, not just here this morning, but uh, what you've done over the years to try and push this in the church in such a, a deep and thoughtful way. And we're hugely grateful for you for coming and giving your time to us this afternoon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.